Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at the big politics stories in the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who writes every day about the mayors, MPs and town halls who make the decisions in our proud region and put it all in a daily newsletter called the Northern Agenda. And I had to tell you there has been a lot to absorb since we put out our last episode of this podcast last week, recorded live in Manchester the day before Rishi Sunak gave his big speech to Tory conference. A week or so later, we now know for sure that HS2 in the North is officially dead. Rishi Sunak doesn't want it. Keir Starmer doesn't look like he wants to bring it back, even if he could. But what's going to replace it with the £36 billion saved from ending high-speed rail in Birmingham in the West Midlands? It seems the Prime Minister himself doesn't even know. He's leaving it to us in the North to decide. It's easy to understand why as Northern leaders I've been speaking to uh, in the last few days are absolutely furious at how this has all played out. But we'll come back to that later. This week, every Politico worth their salt was in Liverpool for a Labour Party conference. And later in the podcast, I'll be hearing from Steve Rotherham, the mayor of the Liverpool city region, about what he made of it, plus getting more details about his bid to take over his region's buses, following in the footsteps of Andy Burnham. So keep listening out for more on that. First, though, let's reflect on what we've learned from Keir Starmer and Labour this week with Joseph Timmon, political writer at the Manchester Evening News, who I'll be trying to get on this podcast whenever I can, as he's keeping a keen eye on the political scene across Greater Manchester. Joe, how are you? How was conference season for you? Yeah, it was good. Um, it was uh, quite a good introduction to the new job. So uh, I've started doing more of this sort of national politics stuff and it doesn't really get much better than having two main political party conferences in the Northwest. Yeah, absolutely. The whole the whole of politics came to you, didn't it? You didn't have to, uh, didn't have to go anywhere to, to see it all happening. So you, uh, you very diligently uh, and in a determined fashion, you got managed to get what might be considered the golden ticket Uh, into the main auditorium at the ACC in Liverpool, where Keir Starmer gave his big conference speech yesterday. So maybe just start off just by telling us what it was like, what was was the atmosphere like in there? You know what, I was struggling to describe it when I was writing a sort of sketch of it all afterwards. It's just too cliche, but it was electric. That's what it was. It was... really? It was, you know, it was really positive and it felt like the big difference and a lot of people have talked about this between uh, this Labour conference and and previous years sort of going back to the Corbyn years I mean I didn't go myself but from what I've heard there was a lot more sort of factional fighting this it felt like everyone was united everyone in that room except for the protester was united behind one message that's quite different from what I've heard previous conferences were like and obviously comparing it to the Conservative conference I wasn't in the hall when Sunak made the speech but the the I think you were in a couple of, of the other sort of events and the impression I got was the general mood 
was sort of a lot more positive and, you know, they really believe they can win. Yeah. I mean, the thing that about Keir Starmer's speech was it, it was a long, a long old speech, wasn't it? Like the best part of an hour yeah. covered um, a lot of ground in, in, in that hour. I mean, obviously, I guess the thing that people, most people will focus on because it was the most sort of newsworthy thing was, well, A, the housing announcements, which we'll come back to, but yeah. um, also the, the, the protester, as, as you mentioned. But there were, were there any particular bits that stood out for you in terms of, you know, a turn of phrase or any, anything that really caught the attention of the room? I, th- I think, I don't know what necessarily caught the attention of the room, but what I noticed was there was a clear line among uh, shadow cabinet members and sort of shadow ministers that you heard throughout the, the conference, or at least I did, um, which was sort of under promise, over deliver. And it felt like that really rung true with his speech as well. Um, he spent a lot of time not only telling us how bad things have got under the last 13 years of Conservative government, which you'd sort of expect from the leader of the opposition, but he was also saying about how hard it's going to be to change that and how change won't come quickly and sort of talked about the challenges of previous Labour governments and how this is now going to be sort of all of those challenges um, compounded. And, you know, it was, I think they're, they're trying to show that they're not going to be able to change things overnight. And I think that really came across in his speech. And I think, I don't know what stood out to the crowd, but like I said, everyone seemed to really get behind the message. Yeah, I guess it's a hard balance to strike, isn't it, between uh, being realistic about what you can achieve and how long it will take to achieve it, but also striking that note of positivity. And, w- and what was it like in the room when the protester, uh, armed with a handful of glitter and uh, a-, a seeming uh, passion for greater democratic links to the House of Commons, when he when he he got on stage, did, did everything go silent or what was it like? Well, yeah, it was it was very dramatic. And to be honest, I've had to watch it back a few times, even though I was in the room, to sort of remind myself of exactly how it all unfolded. Um, just before the speech started, we were all handed out copies, paper copies of the speech. So I was busy going through it all, and then suddenly heard you know this kerfuffle going on on stage. But uh, looking back at the video, actually, it took a while for the sort of applause to die down. Um, and yeah, I think people in that situation they don't quite initially know what's going no, on. Exactly. Do they? It's like a sense of a sense of disbelief. And I've seen a good video of the camera panning to the shadow cabinet who all are like looking on, open mouthed uh, at what's happening. I mean, the thing that the thing that stuck out for me was um, just how long it took for anyone to come on stage to rescue. Keir Starmer or to get this protester off like it seemed like time stood still and like no one was doing anything and he was just standing there this this guy with his arms around Starmer and glitter glitter all over him like it seemed like a, a, a slow response it feels like there's going to be maybe one of the stories that we might get in the next few days is what just exactly why it was that it took so long to respond to that yeah I mean that's another thing I noticed particularly looking back at it I mean like I said I was sort of my head was buried in this paper copy of the speech. By the time I realised what was going on, all I noticed is everyone had gone quiet. You could hear this man screaming his sort of about his cause. But actually, when I look back at the video, it did take a while. Maybe others like me were sort of, you know, or consumed by the moment or busy sort of, you know, taking photos, taking videos of, of Starmer going on stage and didn't, it maybe took a few seconds for them to realise, but you think security would react a bit quicker. Yeah, absolutely. So just turning to the policy, because obviously there was uh, a certain amount of p- 
policy in there, perhaps being a bit more uh, sort of descriptive about what he's actually going to do in government than he than he has been in the past. And on housing, he has pledged to build 1.5 million homes over the next parliament. So that's 300,000 a year, which obviously is the target that the current government is failing failing to hit. But um, Keir Starmer has some quite specific plans for how he is going to be the person to sort of break this trend of uh, the country failing to tackle its housing crisis, a string of new towns, uh, reforming planning laws to enable more house building. But I guess the, the maybe the key point that I see you've picked up on is sort of changing our approach to the green belt, which, you know, if you cover local politics, whether it's in the north or elsewhere, like wherever it is, that there are always rows about whether houses should be built on this protected green belt land that has this protected status in law, how many, what what, what kind of thing is appropriate. And he is going to, it sounds like what he is proposing is going to make quite a difference in this area. Yeah, he was. He specifically said in his speech, this isn't about tearing up the green belt. And he's referred to this new concept, or at least it was new to me, the grey belt. So talking about sort of areas that perhaps have certain protections over them, but uh, ultimately don't have that much sort of ecological value, sort of, yeah. And, and the, the example specifically he gave is sort of, I think, disused car parks. And, and I'm speaking to people today who are quite supportive on the Labour side of, of, of Starmer's speech. They talked about sort of places that were previously perhaps industrial sites or, or housing estates that were cleared and had, nothing's happened on them for 30 years. So they've become green sites, you know, because vegetation has just grown on them. Those are the kind of sites that I think specifically they're looking at building on. That doesn't make it any less controversial in certain circles. I mean, if you've got sort of a, an old piece of land that, that used to be a factory, but it, over the last 40 years has just be- essentially become somewhere that dog walkers use every day. Um, that could easily be a big issue, especially at local elections. It will be interesting to see if that will translate into general elections. I was speaking to um, a Conservative in Greater Manchester today in sort of one of the outer boroughs, and he was saying that that sort of mantra of backing the builders and and sort of, you know, pushing more towards, you know, uh, approving planning applications, tilting that sort of balance in favour of development, that actually does speak to a lot of people who think that that's the way of solving the housing crisis. The people who are worried about backing the builders, not backing the blockers, those blockers only sort of really get up in arms when there's a specific golf course behind their house that's getting developed. So whether this actually has a big impact electorally, um, it's, it's going to be hard to say as a general election. Um, I mean, going to some fringe events, one pollster and many of the candidates sat next to him agreed the big issue is still cost of living. But Starmer is going in on this housing stuff. And what I found interesting is speaking to Labour candidates, MPs, councillors from Greater Manchester whilst I was at the conference. I didn't find one from sort of outside of central Manchester that said they'd put it on their leaflet, this sort of building, uh, back in the builders sort of rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, you can totally see uh, when it comes to the general election, uh, you know, for example, the Lib Dems or the Conservatives saying, Labour want to build all over this beautiful green green area in whichever part of Greater Manchester uh, or the north of England uh, it is. And it's going to put that Labour candidate, I mean, again, to stress, we don't have anyone specific in mind when we're talking about this, but like could put that Labour candidate in a uh, in quite a tricky, a tricky situation. And I think on on 
the media round this morning that Starmer was doing after his speech, he was saying basically those Labour local politicians are just going to have to sort of, uh, they're just going to have to accept it basically that like the national policy is to, you know, a presumption in favour of uh, of planning applications, uh, you know, less regard for for the green belt. Uh, I mean, there's a whole load of other sort of quite specific things that he's doing, increasing the capacity of local councils, planning authorities to sort of make these decisions, uh, intervening where they don't uh, meet national government expectations on you know drawing up local plans and things like that. So. It, it, it will be interesting to see how that clash of sort of national priorities and local politics sort of goes together as we get closer to an election. I mean, we were talking about the uh, the security sort of situation and, and the fact that this protester was able to get so close to to Starmer. And people have been talk, sort of extrapolating from that about the general, what that says about, you know, Labour conference and you know security in general. And it comparing... The experience in Liverpool to to the Conservatives in Manchester, like it couldn't be more different in terms of the atmosphere and the, just the general vibe, to use the political term that we all experienced. And um, you know, to get into the um, the convention centre in Manchester, you had to go through an, an airport style security. So your bag went through a proper scanner. People looked at every single thing that was in there. So it's very difficult to get anything through that you shouldn't be getting through uh at labor conference you bring your bag in someone gave it a, a brief kind of cursory cursory glance and then you went on your way uh which i can't help but think at the next labor conference if labor are in government it's not going to be like that i think they're going to have to tighten tighten that up aren't they yeah i mean especially after the experience of uh of yesterday but um you know during starmer's speech i, th- I think yeah, I think I, I I don't know enough about this, but I assume there are you know there, there's a higher need for security when you've got uh, ministers in the room. Anywhere the prime minister goes, there'll be a really strong security presence. So it makes sense that security was tighter um, where the sort of sitting government, uh, the party in, in government, is is visiting. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was quite a big difference, wasn't it? And it it varied quite a lot with the checks on the way in. So I found that sometimes my bag would be frisked quite um, uh, thoroughly, and sometimes it was just a quick look. So you know, you, you can see how something could have, it could have got a lot worse, I guess, than what actually happened. Glitters sort of quite a, a tame sort of version of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess the security kind of arrangements they all contribute to the general atmosphere in 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 there don't they and I, I mean I don't know how you felt about the general ambience uh there but it felt like yeah the conservatives being in the center of Manchester a big labor city uh it was like a sort of occupying power had descended yeah. in the center of Manchester and like no one really wanted them there and it was surrounded by police officers and angry protesters mm. that kind of thing it's a general like when you walked out of the security court uh, secure zone the people there were saying you have to take your lanyard off so that no one mistakes you for a, a, a conservative if you're a journalist or a delegate whereas at Labour you know it's by the on the on, on the waterfront there's you know merry-go-rounds there you know candy floss stores, like Beatles songs playing in the background. It was like a visit to the, the seaside uh, or something. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely some sort of 
dissenters, shall we say, that were on the outside um, who, you know, are critical of the way that Labour are going. But I I think if you compare it to, I mean, this was the first Labour Party conference I went to, so I can't compare like for like, but I've been at Labour events um, during the Corbyn era. And as a journalist, I've genuinely been scared sometimes. Like some of the stuff you hear about um, journalists among sort of some of the perhaps more extreme wings of the party at the time um, was quite intimidating. And, and there's so many stories you hear about what it was like for some members of different factions with all the sort of infighting. So I think uh, I'm not in a place to say it because I wasn't there at previous conferences, but I bet if you spoke to a lot of you know regular party members, they would have said the atmosphere inside and outside was probably a bit more amicable than it has been in previous yeah. years. The one thing, one other observation I'll make about like inside the secure zone and and you know the actual fringe events and the the the, the conference hall itself is that uh, Labour seemed a lot more at ease than it previously has been with sort of new Labour uh, figures being in quite prominent positions. Like people quite noted quite a lot that Peter Mandelson, you know, the Dark Lord of uh, of the New Labour era, former MP up in Hartlepool, he 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 appeared at a few fringe events. I think he was in the front row when Rachel Reeves gave her speech. I went to a panel event where uh, David Blunkett, former education secretary and home secretary, was given a, a proper hero's welcome, like Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor of Liverpool, Liverpool City Region, and Bridget Phillips and the current education, shadow education secretary, were saying, you know, about his legacy uh, to, to people like them. And I feel like maybe three or four years ago, you wouldn't have been hearing praise of praise of new labor when uh, when jeremy corbyn was in charge and that's maybe a, a and i guess because starmer he, you know he is taking labor more towards the center more towards new labor where new labor used to be they were a bit more relaxed about you know the legacy of the new labor years yeah absolutely and i, I can't remember who i heard um sort of i heard some analysis of his speech afterwards and he did sort of draw on on different labor eras i think there was some speculation of um Starmer just sort of trying to follow the new Labour pattern and um, just go down that route in the kind of stuff that he's saying and the kind of government he'd want to run. But um, he talked about the challenges of sort of post-war Labour building houses and he talked about sort of the challenges of modernising the economy and and other Labour sort of uh, administrations. So it wasn't just, uh, let's just go back to what we did 13, you know, or 20, 20 or so years ago. I think you're right. There is a big difference because they aren't afraid to talk about it. But I think it wasn't just like a cut and paste job. Um, there, there was a, there was a bit more nuance to it, wasn't it? Yeah, they're putting their own their own slant on it. And um, the final thing I just wanted to talk about, and it it, it wasn't such a big feature of uh, you know the actual pronouncements by Labour politicians themselves, but I think a lot of people were talking about it in you know, the kind of fringe events that I was going to, which are populated by sort of northern business types and, uh, you know, people in the in the north, transport, people who are interested in transport. The whole HS2 Network North uh, debacle, I think I think we can call it a debacle, uh, obviously hanging over from last week's Tory party conference. Obviously, Rishi Sunak has now, as we said in the intro, uh, he said that HS2 will not go beyond... Birmingham, uh, either to Manchester or to Leeds, uh, and the £36 billion that he is saving from that is going to go on an assortment of uh, transport projects in the north. That was last week. It's since become apparent that this 
40-page document which says things like we will uh, reinstate the lean sideline in the northeast and we will build a mass transit system in in bristol uh these are all just uh illustrative examples of the things that could be built we are now told certainly wasn't the impression we were given at the time uh, and actually uh it's going to be up to uh, northern leaders to decide where they where they spend the money and what they what they do with it so actually we, we you know a week on we're still not really that clear on what uh what this money is likely to be spent on and so the question obviously was asked to Keir Starmer well what are you going to do uh and the impression I got is that he is not going to reverse uh Sunak's decision in part because I think in between now and the next election the government is going to sell off the land that it was going to build HS2 on it's going to cancel the contracts so it's basically salting the earth so that Labour, even if it wanted to uh, reinstate HS2 in the North, couldn't. But actually, I think I, I get the sense, even if that wasn't the case, that uh, it might be a difficult one for Starmer to reintroduce HS2. And as a consequence, we didn't hear anything. There were no promises from either him or Rachel Reeves or Louise Haig, the Shadow Transport Secretary, about how they would reverse this decision. I mean, what, what, did, what did you hear about you know that 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 whole issue. I think I, th I think um, the mayors. I mean, I know Andy Burnham is is now sort of definitely pushing for Northern Powerhouse Rail, the sort of east west connections across the north, um, to to be a priority under the next uh, under the next Labour government. Um, on HS two, um, they were struggling to answer the question before the government made its decision, but now um, I think understandably. Like, as you said, they don't really know what position the project's going to be left in by the time they come into government. And the signs are at the moment that it will be um, almost like starting from scratch in, in many respects. Um, so I think Rachel Reeves announced and then a, Louise Haig said in her speech about sort of an independent inquiry um, into what went wrong with HS2, um, which is sort of... I suppose their way of saying we're not happy with how the Tories dealt with it, but we can't tell you we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to try and learn lessons from it. Um, so, yeah, it's it, like I said, the general line from the top has been under promise and over deliver. So they're definitely not going to be committing to a big project like HS2, um, given the state that sort of it's in at the moment. Uh, yeah, I think, as I said, I think that the voices of the North at the moment sort of definitely on the Labour side. But I think there'd be a lot of agreement on on, the, on, on other parts of the political spectrum as well. Um, just get on with the, the, the other stuff, especially the big stuff. Um, you know, not just the sort of public transport improvements that both sides have talked about, but also, you know, the big Northern Powers Rail project that's been talked about for years, but there's not been loads of progress on. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just leave with this uh, a bit of a sort of thought about where the parties are uh, in terms of their fortunes after the after these conferences. I mean, it, I, I've seen some polling has come out from 38 Degrees, the campaign group, which says that across the north, it's looking pretty bleak for the Conservatives. The cost of living crisis, soaring NHS waiting times mean that the Tories would lose every seat in the northeast other than North Northumberland, they'd lose as many as 20 Yorkshire and the Humber seats. And in the North West, they would only be left with Congleton, Cheadle, Ribble Valley and Tatton if an election were held now. Interestingly, though, this 
uh, polling was done in late September, so before uh, much of the HS2 stuff came out, before the Tory conference, before Labour conference. My hunch, though, is that the event since then won't have done much to improve the Tories' situation. But I guess we will wait to see uh, how you know what what the polling shows, whether there's any kind of bounce for Rishi Sunak or any kind of bounce for Keir Starmer uh, in the coming days. So, um, Joe Timman, thanks for thanks for catching up on conference season. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. Now, it's been a big week for Merseyside in a lot of ways. Liverpool held the Labour Party conference with packed bars and restaurants for three nights. Everton FC's new stadium is going to host some of the games at the Euro 2028 football tournament. And at a science base in Daresbury, a few miles down the River Mersey, a new centre has opened researching how to make computers more than 100 million times faster than the ones we have today. But perhaps the thing that's going to have the biggest impact on people in the city is the decision announced by Liverpool City Region Metro Mayor Steve Rotherham to take local bus services under public control. He's three years behind his mate Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, where bus franchising came into effect just a few weeks ago. But if it all goes as it should, leaders here hope the impact on the lives of passengers could be transformational. So let's hear all about it from the man who made the decision, Steve Rotherham. Welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast. Great pleasure. Good, to, Very good to have you on. So before we get on to buses, we, I guess we should talk a bit about Labour Conference. As you were there, uh, well, in fact, you were here, there and everywhere. I think every time I went to a fringe uh, panel, you, you were there in some capacity. Uh, it was very, I don't know how you managed to get to all the different events, but it was, it, it was a lot. Um, but I, I've got to ask, um, Steve, what you made of Keir Starmer's speech it seems like it was quite warmly received by the media i mean for, was, was there much in it for people in your in, in your patch what did you think of it yeah I, I got to so many events because that's the beauty of cloning isn't it um but it did feel like that at times i think it did 40 odd uh, different events over those few days and of course that culminated in the, the speech by the leader and the reaction really to that speech you know if we Forget about what happened with the lunatic who, who invaded the stage and, and concentrate on the substance of what was said. There was an awful lot for areas like ours to give us hope that there is a genuine alternative to austerity and that you know areas like ours where we know there's huge latent potential could be the next ones to really start to, to see some of those aspirations put into um, to delivery mode, and that's what I really need to concentrate on now. It's, you know, we've had long enough, haven't we, to talk about strategy? It now has to be about changing people's lives. Yeah, and as a general impression of of Labour conference, I mean, I think a lot of commentators have been saying it, it felt like this was the conference where Labour felt they were going to win, feel like you're going to win, and there was that sense of confidence, sort of uh, among delegates. I mean. Do you get that impression or do you think there's still, obviously we're still, you know, a few months out from a, a general election and, you know, there's still a lot that could happen or is, is it a done deal as, as far as you're concerned or is there still potential pitfalls between now and whenever the next election is? Well, you're right, there is definitely uh, an election looming, but we don't know when do we, so we know it's probably in the next 12 months or so. But 
because of that, it felt more like the 96 Labour Party conference where, you know, there was going to be a general election, but we didn't know quite when. And obviously that was called in 97 and Labour went on to, to victory in that. So it did feel a bit like that. But that, that can't take away from the fact that, you know, everybody who spoke said that this can't be about complacency. There's still an awful lot to win, but there's a lot to lose as well. And, and the only thing I would say is it was in stark contrast. I was in Manchester the week before and it was doom and gloom. And I'm not on about Manchester. The Tory party conference um, was as dour as the, the weather uh, was on those few days. And, and you saw the difference between the sort of death throes of a zombie government and a potential Labour government with so much idea and verve uh, and, uh, you know, determination to see that this country could be a far better place than the currently is under this lot. Now, we'll come back to some of the specifics about what might be different for the Liverpool City region under a potential Labour government uh, in, in, in a few minutes. But uh, um, buses is obviously the big thing that you've been talking about in the last few days. It's Friday afternoon that you made the announcement that you are going to uh, take uh, buses in the Liverpool city region uh, out of the current system where private operators decide on the routes and the fares and so forth. And that is all now going to be decided by, uh, you know, by your office essentially and under a franchising system. Um, obviously this is what is already happening or is starting to happen in Greater Manchester. I see that West Yorkshire are moving slowly down the track towards that as well. I think South Yorkshire too. Um, so it's, it's, I guess they will be, Following, they're following what's going on in your region with a lot of interest. Um, for people living in the Liverpool City region, how, how is this going to change change their lives? Just just explain what the what the impact will be for them. Well, it is going to change their lives. Um, you know, to to have our buses back under public control, it, it will demonstrate just what a folly it was for the Thatcher administration, the Tories back in the mid eighties to have broken and fragmented public transport in the way that they did. And, you know, we've commandeered the old Brexit, you know, when he said taking back control, well, we're saying we're taking back control of our buses and we're going to do it on our, our rail. We want to do it on our skills and on the future of, of so many things in the Liverpool city region, but we're putting the public back into public transport. And that's the main thing we're going to take what we will inherit off life support and nurse it back to full health. Because at this moment in time, 82% of our public transport journeys are made on buses. And yet we've seen year after year, the, those routes that we used to rely on being cut because of affordability. You know, the shareholders haven't lost out, but the passengers have. So we want to have greater control over our routes, the fares, the timetables, you know, even the type of fleet or even the colour, the livery of our buses, we want to be taking that over and having a say in, in what we do and how we then reinvest any margins that are made, any surpluses back into the network so that becomes even better. So year on year, you'll see improvements. But it is the case, is it not, that uh, as in Greater Manchester, to get this started, you need quite a bit of money 
from central government to pump prime it, I guess, to sort of get to make that investment in, uh, in, in all different aspects of the bus system, which will allow this to happen. It will take a while before the, you know, the publicly controlled bus system in the Liverpool city region is financially sustainable. You'll need quite a bit of help to get to that point. Now, Rob, we're, we're, we're not doing it that way around. We're not waiting for central governments to decide on, on how much we can have from, from pots of money, national pots of money, or for handouts. We're, we're going to do this because we've put together a business case and a model that stacks up. And we, we will obviously work with our local authorities and we've got other ways in which we can raise, raise revenues. But, of course, what we will do is instead of putting those profits into the back pockets of shareholders, we're going to be putting that back into public transport, uh, into the network itself and improving things. So um, whilst, of course, uh, these things are, are fraught with all sorts of issues that we've yet to um, to sort out because we, we need to redesign the routes and um, we need to look at where the depots are and we need to work, of course, on the, the packages that we will franchise out, the whole thing will make much more coherence. You know, at, at this moment in time, we subsidise heavily our bus routes, and yet there are some profitable ones, and we have to pay um, concessions to those areas that currently the bus operating companies tell us are not sustainable on their own. So we'll start to cross-subsidise and use funding in a completely different way. And, and what we'll do is, because we want a, a simpler tap in, tap out ticketing system and daily fare caps will attract even more people onto buses and onto public transport and then integrate all of that together so it starts to make coherence and sense just like it does in London. Yeah, so you won't have to do what Greater Manchester I think is doing and uh, they're imposing a, there was a, a precept I think in Greater Manchester which is helping to pay for their B network, you're not proposing to go go down that route. Yeah, but precepts are local um, not national funding. Yeah. So we, we will look at all of the the local um, ways in which we can use the levers that we have, so that it is sustainable. But of course, you know, if we are genuine about trying to tackle climate emergency, for instance, and getting more people out of cars and onto public transport, then we we can speed that up. We can accelerate it if there's some national funding pots and and. We're not turning national monies away, given that it's ours in the first place. And yeah. um, the disparity between what's happened in London, for instance, and what's happened in the north per head of, of population is, is, is enormous. So if they're closing that gap, yet yeah, we'll gladly uh, have some of the money that we're owed. Yeah, but so so a precept is not it's not it's one of the things you're considering. Would that be would that be fair to say? Because obviously, yeah, we've looked at precept, and then there are other mechanisms in the Liverpool City region. So, for instance, transport levy working with our local authorities, and then we have um, other things within the the transport network that we could raise additional funding for. But the whole thing is about building a really really good and attractive um, alternative to the car. That's what we, we need to do. And if you get them working together, instead of what we've currently got, which is fragmented, you know, so you've got your buses and your trains and our ferry, and then anything else that we introduce, if you've got all of that working together, then you can make a go of a public transport system. 
that's really interesting. Now, I want to move from uh, buses to a different form of transport. Um, HS2 is, I, I feel like that issue really dominated Manchester Tory conference. It, it, it did come up a fair bit at, 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 at Labour conference as well. And, you know, people were uh, Keir Starmer and Louise Hagel being asked about it. But I think the consensus now is that, you know, as an idea, uh, HS2, the Western leg going up into the northwest of England is now dead in the water. Rishi Sunak has said he's he, he's axing it. Keir Starmer has not given any indication that he's going to bring it back from the dead. So I guess I'm just interested because obviously you and other northern mayors, a, a few days ago, you came over to Leeds in a show of solidarity with, uh, you know, the mayor of West Yorkshire, the mayor of South yeah. Yorkshire, uh, even the mayor of London to talk about how important it was that HS2 uh, be be built. Now it's apparent that isn't going to happen. Do you think people in your patch, uh, do you think they care that HS2 is not coming? The reason, the reason I ask, I saw an interview with uh, Jamie Carragher, the footballer, who was asked about all sorts of different topics. And he was said that, he said, I don't think it's something that anyone on the streets of Liverpool is talking about. I, I think it was always seen as something that was going to Manchester. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jamie Carragher is necessarily representative of everyone's views uh, on Merseyside, but do you, do you think that's what maybe a lot of people in your patch might be saying? Actually, we'd rather have better local services than this this project that is costing loads and loads of money and is only going to directly sort of uh, impact a few of us. I think there's a lack of understanding on what HS2 actually did in regard to connecting Manchester, not just with London or Birmingham, but with Liverpool, because some of the same infrastructure for HS2 was what was called Northern Powerhouse Rail Infrastructure. And without that leg, that part of it, then we can't get from Liverpool to Manchester and then Manchester to Leeds, and et cetera, et cetera. So it was always um, sold on being two things. One, it was connecting Manchester to Birmingham and London, and then two, it was about high speed. Uh, and, and for me, the most important thing was that we got west-east connectivity that included north-south connectivity, but it was about capacity and not just about speed. So the reason that I, I think Labour's stance is that they don't know what's going to happen in the future is because the government could well tie the hands of any incumbent Labour government by removing the safeguarding orders. And if those protections go, then that means that by the time, hopefully, a Labour government were elected, then that land will, won't be able to be used. The land assembly um, will have gone. And in fact, you could see things already being built on it. So if you lose that, you can't buy all of that back. Um, it means that not only is Sunak, you know, cancelled something, he's absolutely killed it stone dead. Now, I know in this uh, this Network North document, which uh, I think uh, a few people think is maybe not worth the uh, the paper it's it, it's written on, because it's a list of uh, illustrative projects rather than things we yeah. get, it does make clear, or at least it claims, that the £12 billion earmarked to ensure high-speed connections between Liverpool and Manchester, so the bit of HS2 that you were talking about, that that will 
go ahead. I mean, does that give you any any confidence that the bit of HS2 that 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 works for your patch is 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 still going to happen in some form, even if it's a different given a different name? I'm not bothered about the name because it's been called so many things. In fact, it was started as HS3, and again, I've just said it was not about high speed. It was about capacity. You know, if we're going to get freight onto rail in the Liverpool city region into the port of Liverpool, then that's the most important thing. And if you're trying to squeeze even more train paths onto congested railway, then you're not going to be able to get high speed, but you're not going to be able to get anything else on it. So it's all a bit of a misnomer. The mess that they've created is that they've promised people, obviously this South North um, connection, that's now not going to happen. But for us, West East, the £12 billion that's been identified is just a, a stab in the dark. I mean, there's no business case that says £12 billion will build a new station in Liverpool and then a new twin track line across to Manchester and then a station at Manchester. These are just fantasy figures. So it, it, the whole thing's very, very phony. Now you throw a lot of of chap up and then people start to go well 12 billion pounds sounds an awful lot well it, it is an awful lot but if it doesn't do the job if it's less than what's needed then it means that the project is not viable uh, and i'm afraid we've seen this all along with um, not only the the way in which this funding has been announced but the way in which they've tried to kid people that its distribution is somehow fair you know potholes being filled in with the money that was for our leg, the northern leg, being used down south, or that there's going to be a better train connectivity between Oxford and Cambridge. You know, how are these things genuinely going to help the north? All they're going to do is embed the disparities and the uh, the way in which this country is so unequal and, and levelling up actually died the day that Sunak talked about cancelling HS2. Now, we've got a, uh, an op-ed in uh, the Northern Agenda newsletter today from Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, and he says uh, our decision to cancel phase two of HS2 means more money for more places across the north. And he, has, he says specifically, for example, we'll double the Liverpool city region's sustainable transport budget, ensuring better local transport that arrives sooner. Uh, are, you, are you convinced by that? Does, is that? does that go any way to softening the blow of, of, of losing HS2? Well, there's a bit of smoke and mirrors there because we're getting £1.6 million, but we were going to get a billion pounds on CLSTS. So that's not £2 billion, is it? So it hasn't doubled. It's certainly gone up from the last uh, announcement that we, we had for CRSTS, um, which is the current um, sort of control period. But again, um, this is not until 2027. So it's about... All of this, um, you know, smoke and mirrors that somehow this money is going to pay dividends now. This is this is not going to be seen for many, many decades in regard to the full realisation. The £12 billion, for instance, is 2041. You know, some people my age will be lucky enough to be around in 2041. I hope I am. But that's the extent of all of this um, kicking the can down the road and, you know, the Tories are famous for, aren't they? They're, they're not only spending somebody else's legacy monies, you know, the inheritance money, 
uh, of future generations, but they're doing it in an incoordinated, uncoordinated, sorry, and a, an incohesive way. So for us as a city region, we don't know how much we're actually going to be getting because we certainly know that the Tories aren't going to be in control when some of these pots are due to be paid out. Now, as it's quite clear, a lot of northern mayors, like yourself, very unhappy with the Conservative government currently. But I, I guess I'm, I, I'm interested in realistically how much is can change if and when Labour take power. I think you said, uh, I think I, I read that you said that, you know, the, a Labour government won't be able to wave a magic wand when it comes to, you know, solving all the problems that our country currently has on so many different issues, you know, the NHS, the state of local government, the sewage being pumped into the water, these are all long-term problems, aren't they? I mean, do people need to be realistic about what can be done if and when Labour take 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 power? Or like, what, what, what things do you think they could be doing better that the current government isn't doing? Well, you'll know and appreciate when you speak to people that the first thing is they can't wait to see the back of the Tories. But then it's about expectations, isn't it? And people think because that will mean the end of 13, 14 years of austerity, that all of a sudden you can just turn the tap back on. But of course, the economic circumstances, what we will find when we hopefully form the next government will be difficult. And that means that we're going to have to do things in a slightly different way than somebody like me who's a very impatient person would like and and so we have to we have to be realistic and tell people uh the reality now and not just wait then but it doesn't mean to say that things won't improve i mean dear me uh the whole world for me would improve because we would have some certainty of the way in which we can approach things we would have a a, a distribution that would be fairer across the whole country we would have some priorities that we are all in principally supportive of rather than the way in which things happen at this moment which is just it's living almost hand to mouth and day to day and bidding in for pots of money that sometimes you know you're not even going to win and there's a beauty contest and of course there are the imperfections should we call them designed and built in so that there's an uh, at least an argument by some ministers that their individual areas should benefit from some of the distribution of, for instance, levelling up funding when levelling up surely is about those areas that are being left behind the most. And it's never been like that. We have an area called um, Heighton and they've been in, I think, four times for levelling up funding. Didn't get anything, but two former chancellors of the Exchequer have got funding, even though their areas on GVA and GDP and a whole host of different other measures and miles ahead of Heighton. So I just think fairness will be built into the system and we'll start to see some real social justice. Well, there's a lot uh, that is going to be uh, a lot of expectation, I think, on, on Labour's shoulders if and when they take power. I would just Before we go to it, I just wanted to ask you about one specific uh, bit of policy that I know you're really interested in. I, I saw you at a uh, Tory conference in Manchester talking about uh, skills and particularly apprentice apprenticeships, which I know is a big passion of yours. And I know the system as it stands at the moment, for a lot of people say really doesn't work in terms of how apprentices are funded and 
there's a certain amount of money that goes into the system, but it's not being spent in the best way. You've been knocking at the door of consecutive education secretaries, haven't you, including Gillian Keegan, who's, who, who grew up not far from not far from you. And I don't think you've been getting anywhere, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Do, do you think that is likely to change if, if Labour get power? Well, Gillian Keegan, uh, from the aforementioned um, Heighton, you know, who has just said that didn't get any of that levelling up funding when uh, they should have done. So it shows you that uh, the whole thing for me has been a bit of a swizz. Uh, on skills, though, I first approached um, Justin Greening, who is the Secretary of State, back in 2016, I think, uh, and, and posed some questions and, and some ideas to her. And she was really interested. And in when I became the Metro Mayor in 2017, I, I wrote to her. And I've subsequently seen her. Um, I think it was in London. Uh, I, no longer a member of the, um, the, the Tory party, I think. But I spoke to her and asked about why some of the things that I'd put to her didn't come to fruition. Uh, and she was quite clear that it was the machinery that had slowed things down. So that machinery is still there with eight subsequent secretaries of state for education. And we need to do something about that. I've always said that Department for Education uh, are probably the most centralised of all of the bureaucracies down there. And the, the, for me, the idea is that you use some of the funding that's already been levied against businesses, employers who pay into the apprenticeship levy fund that is supposed to be to plug some of the skills gaps and shortages. And of course, what has happened is some of that has been underspent and has accrued. And that's about between 2.2 and 3 billion pounds. And that could be easily distributed because it's been raised for that single purpose. It's, it's supposed to be hypothecated funding that comes to areas like ours and we could put on hundreds, if not thousands, of proper apprenticeships here, getting young people trained, plugging some of the skill shortages and skill gaps, responding to employers, and of course, giving people a proper chance in life for a career. That's an easy thing to do, and that's what I'll be pressing a future Labour government, should we um, accede to power, that's what I'll be pressing the government to do. Well, we will watch with interest to see whether that happens. Steve Rotherham, Mayor of the Liverpool City Region, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in reading about politics in the north of England every day, why not sign up to the Northern Agenda newsletter? You can find it at www.thenorthernagenda.com. .co.uk. The Northern Agenda podcast is a laudable production for Reach PLC and it is presented by me, Rob Parsons, and produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. See you next week.